Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. Today I'll be speaking with David F. Gajewski, MD. He's lead author on an article published in the May Critical Care Medicine entitled Benchmarking the Incidence and Mortality of Severe Sepsis in the United States. Gajewski is an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine in the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Gajewski. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Your, your article presents a very interesting look at different models used to estimate uh, the incidence of mortality and, and mortality of severe sepsis nationally. And I was hoping you could begin by telling us what got you interested in this topic and also for the general audience uh, why it's important. So I got, I've been interested in sepsis since I was in medical school and when I, I was at Penn and then went down to Christiana to do an emergency medicine residency, Christiana in Delaware. And when I came back, we wanted to start a program to do more aggressive sepsis care. And I think my interest in this sort of came out of the fact that it was unclear to many people exactly what sepsis was. And when you dug into the literature and saw where the consensus definitions came from, it was pretty clear that there was a lot of debate about what constituted cases of sepsis. Um, and then when you try to actually capture them in databases, it was difficult. And people that we considered having severe sepsis in the ED um, may not get coded as severe sepsis at the end of their hospital stay, even if they had positive blood cultures or won antibiotics for a full course to treat pneumonia. And so saw a disconnect in, in this. And the more programs started to develop uh, nationally to benchmark sepsis, to talk about the quality of sepsis care, and the debate sort of intensified about time to antibiotics and other issues surrounding sepsis care. It seemed like this was a, a very uh, important issue to really try to get at, at who was being called sepsis, how these patients were being captured, and what the implications of that were for national programs and for quality of care. Great. And so you um, looked at four different models of capturing sepsis and severe sepsis and septic shock from administrative databases, right, and not looking at um, defining based on the consensus definitions? So the way that we use this in, in this article was to use these four models. The, probably the most well-known is from Derek Angus at University of Pittsburgh sure. in, from an article published in Critical Care Medicine in 2001. And Dr. Angus um, examined 1995 data uh, from, I believe, eight states. And he used uh, ICD-9 codes at discharge for infectious etiologies, and then he paired those with ICD-9 codes for organ dysfunction. And by doing that, he, did, he, he delved into the consensus definition for severe sepsis, which is uh, infection linked with acute organ dysfunction, as, as everyone's aware. So that's one of the techniques. Um, and then the other techniques uh, use 
variations of ICD-9 codes. So all of these capture techniques are based on ICD-9 codes at hospital discharge. The one from Henry Wang, who was also at Pittsburgh for an extended period of time, is really a modification of Derek Angus's technique and uses slightly different infectious codes. Um, and when Dr. Wang did his work, he paired those with emergency department vital signs. The other two techniques also use ICD-9 codes for infection, but um, are narrowed down onto a smaller group of codes for infection, such as bacteremia. And then the, the technique from Dombrowski um, that was published in Critical Care Medicine, I believe in 2009, uh, was using more the new sepsis-specific ICD-9 codes for severe sepsis and septic shock. Great. And so you compared these four models to try and yield a national incidence and mortality based on a separate um, database. Is that correct? Correct. We that? used the uh, national inpatient sample, or right. NIST, and that um, comes from uh, the American Healthcare Quality Research uh, and it's large, large database. It's a 20% stratified database of all admissions to hospitals in the United States. And the number of states in it varies year to year, but um, for some of the years we were working in 2004 to 2009, it's uh, about 43 or 44 states. And uh, it's stratified in the sense that they try to give different weight to critical access hospitals, the smaller hospitals, and different demographics as far as urban versus rural to get an accurate 20% uh, representation of all inpatient admissions. And then when you go from that to a, a true national estimate, you use a multiplier that is somewhere in the five neighborhoods, so 20% times five would give you 100%. Um, but it, depending upon the year and the number of hospitals and how accurate it was at capturing 20%, the multiplier may be 4.9 or 5.1. But it gives you a, a pretty close estimate of how many patients are admitted to U.S. hospitals each year, and it has a hundred or so data points that are both patient level and hospital level data points. So you can know whether, uh, you know, how old the person was and what uh, ethnicity they were, some other details about the patient, um, some comorbidities, and then you can know hospital level aspects like uh, how many beds the hospital has, whether it's a teaching hospital, whether it would be classified as urban or rural. So there's, it's a rich database for researching uh, uh, disease conditions such as severe sepsis. Sure. And NIS, NIS does uh, capture both academic medical centers and non-academic medical centers, the whole broad spectrum of uh, hospitals within the country. Yes. And uh, th that's exactly what the uh, a lot of the the details of how they pick their hospitals uh, is is generated, and they're really trying to make sure that they they're getting a really representative sample from around the United States. And 
up to 6,000 odd hospitals in the U.S. About 1,200 of them are critical access hospitals with 25 or fewer beds, and they put a lot of work into making sure those are uh, accurately represented in um, the national inpatient sample. You can imagine how you would get a very biased sample if you chose 20% of the uh, hospital admissions, but they were all chosen from hospitals like Penn and and um, you know Columbia and Jefferson and and the Harvard hospitals and stuff that that would give you a very biased perspective on who gets admitted to U.S. hospitals. Sure. So uh, using this very rich database, you looked at the uh, four different capture methods, and uh, and and found some interesting findings. Do you want to, do you want to take us through some of uh, of what you found? Sure. Um, so. One of the starting points of what we found is that regardless of which capture technique you used, we found a, a higher incidence of severe sepsis and septic shock nationally than has been reported in the four capture techniques we used. Um, we did find a similar incidence uh, using the technique that Dombrovsky uh, developed, which is um, using ICD-9 codes in the severe sepsis and septic shock specific codes, uh, as was published last year in 2012 in Critical Care Medicine by um, a group from Bay State Medical Center up in Massachusetts with Dr. Lagu and Dr. Lindenauer as the lead authors. And they used a modified technique from Dombrowski and found an incidence of 300 cases per 100,000. And we found a very similar incidence using that technique, um, the, uh, the Dombrowski technique. And then it increased up uh, through Greg Martin from Emory's technique, where we found um, about 369 cases per 100,000. And then Derek Angus's technique, 917 per 100,000. And using Henry Wang's, which was the most inclusive technique, we found over a thousand cases per hundred thousand. So the much more, um, much larger incidence of severe sepsis than uh, has been previously reported. And I think this has, you know, significant implications for how we take care of this disease, um, what amount of attention should be paid to severe sepsis, and uh, maybe the importance of programs to lower mortality from this. Hmm. Put into, uh, into um, just sheer numbers, uh, using the Angus technique, we found over 2 million cases a year of severe sepsis in 2009, and that can be compared to when Derek did uh, his, uh, Derek Angus did his initial work using 1996 data that was published in 2001. He talked about 750,000 cases of severe sepsis a year, and uh, he said that the, uh, the incidence uh, would increase about 1.5% a year. Another interesting finding we found was that the incidence uh, the increase year to year was significantly more than that, and it was steady across all four search techniques, and it was between 13 and 13.3 percent increase per year in cases of severe sepsis, so a tenfold 
almost uh, difference from what Dr. Angus reported in his 2001 paper. Those numbers are really out, outstanding um, and impressive. The, it's interesting, you know, as you take each model, the more inclusive it is, obviously, the more number of cases you'll find and, and vice versa. But even the strictest techniques yielded more numbers than Angus's original publication. Is that, is that right? Um, so for 2009, the strictest techniques lead more, uh, uh, yield more numbers than Dr. Angus showed uh, for 10 years before. Um, and if, uh, I believe if you extrapolated the 1.5% increase that Dr. Angus would have uh, said would occur from 1996 up to the last year we were studying 2009, you'd have about a million cases or so. Whereas with his technique, we showed two and a half times that amount. Um, using the strictest techniques in 2009, we're showing just under and just over a million cases. So very similar to what Derek Angus showed, but using a much stricter technique, either the way uh, Greg Martin did it or Dombrovsky did it. So, um, yes, in one sense, we're showing significantly more numbers than uh, any of the other techniques showed in the prior studies. That being said, you know, the uh, sepsis is certainly, you know, the, the numbers appear to be increasing. I, I suppose there are a couple of different explanations for that. I think, um, you know, certainly being uh, involved in uh, uh, quality improvement initiatives in the hospital. There's certainly an, an initiative to be more accurate and inclusive in, in coding um, so that uh, as we have public reporting of data and, and are able to compare data from year to year, we, we, we do, we're able to do so. But at the same time, there may very well be a real increase in the incidence of, of sepsis. I don't know if there's a way to distinguish between the two in, uh, based on your data or, uh, or do you have some speculation? So I have some speculation. I think it's very hard working in a database such as the NIST uh, to differentiate between the two. Uh, however, I think that what we're seeing is a multifactorial process. We're seeing exactly, as you said, increased recognition of sepsis. And because of that increased recognition, cases that previously wouldn't have even been considered infectious people are now having more awareness of. So someone who may have been admitted to a hospital and, and they got an ICD-9 code of shock not otherwise specified, now people are uh, with more uh, awareness are considering is this person septic and thinking about undifferentiated shock as sepsis till proven otherwise in many cases. Um, so that would be one thing. But then because of the sepsis campaigns that have gone on, hospital sepsis quality improvement protocols and things like that, people are also coding more for sepsis. And that, I think, has come about, especially since there's been dedicated ICD-9 codes for sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. So uh, since 2003, progression toward uh, more coding for for these uh, conditions. So if you code for more patients, you increase your denominator of sepsis by doing that. So that would be a second thing. And then I think a third thing is uh, related to changing demographics in our population and, and increased aging population. As we all know, elderly patients are at increased risk 
for uh, developing sepsis have uh, immune systems that aren't as as uh, well honed to fight off infection. And then a lot of modern medicine, what we do to keep people alive um, and to treat their conditions has led to a whole group of patients. uh, And I think the two categories that jump to mind the most are oncology patients, people getting active chemotherapy, uh, and then immune suppressed patients, especially transplant patients and then patients who are maintained on immunosuppressive agents for extended periods of time for different kinds of autoimmune diseases and stuff. And those uh, cohorts of patients are at marked increased risk of infection. So when you combine all that together, increased coding, increased awareness, and changing demographics, I think you get a sense of why uh, severe sepsis Incidents could be going up not 1.5%, but more in the 13, 14, 15% per year range. It certainly makes a lot of sense. Is, do we have uh, a- any um, data regarding how well we do actually code for sepsis? How well our ICD 9 uh, codes uh, correlate with uh, true cases of sepsis and how well they actually capture um, cases? Do they miss some? Yeah, so uh, that's. You know, that cuts right into one of the central uh, issues here is even using the ICD-9 codes in a database like NIST, how well do those codes that are assigned to people over their hospital stay and, you know, at the end of their, their, their time in the hospital at discharge, how well do they correlate with an actual gold standard of people who have sepsis? Um, complicated question in the sense that we could talk for hours and put lots of the world experts about sepsis on the phone with us, and we would have trouble getting at what that gold standard is. Um, interestingly, though, just uh, recently, uh, earlier this year in Critical Care Medicine, we published another paper looking at severe sepsis cohorts, which were devi- derived from um, claims-based strategies using ICD-9 codes at hospital discharge. And what we did was one of the things we, we have done in the, the HUP emergency department, the University of Pennsylvania um, teaching hospital emergency department, was for about six years we uh, built a severe sepsis database where we tried using evidence-based uh, approaches and definitions to capture all severe sepsis patients that were admitted to the hospital from our emergency department. And it's about 1% of our patients that we see, and so it's, uh, we see about 60,000 patients a year, and it's about 600 patients a year get admitted from the ED with uh, SERS criteria, a presumed source of infection, getting blood cultures and antibiotics, and uh, for the vast majority of them, a lactate checked in the ED and getting resuscitated. So those are patients we would consider as having severe sepsis and the percentage of them that have uh, obvious sources of infection and positive cultures fit in very well with the the national um, large studies that have been published in large uh, intervention trials in severe sepsis. So we had access to that database and what we did in this paper we said So here's 1,700 patients from four years who were admitted to 
the hospital at Penn with severe sepsis from the ED, and what percentage of these patients would be captured by the Derek Angus technique, and which percentage of these patients would be coded with the specific ICD-9 codes for severe sepsis and septic shock. And what we found was, was very surprising. We found that um, only uh, in the 47% or so of the patients um, were coded with an ICD-9 code um, that for infection in another for acute organ dysfunction that would allow them to be captured by the Derek Angus technique. And then a significantly lower percentage of them were coded with either the specific severe sepsis or septic shock ICD-9 codes. So uh, what it suggests is that maybe the numbers in our recent paper on benchmarking severe sepsis are again, much lower than the actual because maybe only half of the patients uh, that come into the hospital, either through the ED or develop sepsis in-house, actually end up getting coded at the end of their stay with an ICD-9 code for severe sepsis or septic shock or would be able to be captured by one of the four techniques we're studying in our benchmarking paper. Um. So that's interesting. So we, we actually may be looking at even much larger numbers uh, than than your paper projects. Correct. It's uh, that is quite daunting. The uh, certainly the the reassuring part of your uh, paper does suggest that mortality rates uh, over time are, are decreasing. Is, is that correct? That is correct, and uh, the mortality rate for all four techniques went down over the six-year study period from 2004 to 2009. So it's good that one of the things we're seeing is that regardless of whether we use Derek Angus's technique or Greg Martin's technique or the other two, we saw the same decrease in percent mortality uh, year to year over that time. So that makes you feel like your, your data are in internally consistent and translatable across the search techniques. And then it makes you say to yourself, so why is the mortality going down? And, you know, as a clinician, you hope it's because we're identifying patients sooner. We're using techniques to identify patients, such as uh, early lactate assessment to help risk stratify these patients, and then using either true uh, quantitative resuscitation strategies such as early goal-directed therapy or modifications of that where we understand, you know, the importance of early fluid boluses, uh, adequate IV access, source control, and then using um, some of the evidence for early antibiotic administration in critically ill uh, sepsis patients and that all of those things combined are what are lowering the mortality. And I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is that as awareness for sepsis increases, more patients are coded as uh, severe sepsis, and more patients who are less sick but do meet the um, definitions of severe sepsis are now categorized as uh, severe sepsis and septic shock. I think uh, back 
10, 15 years ago, the perception was that uh, most patients with severe sepsis or septic shock died, or at least a, a really high percentage of them did. And so there was a bias towards the sicker patients. And in fact, that's what we showed in our recent paper looking at uh, claims-based strategies for, for uh, labeling these patients. So I think that bias still persists, but I think that more patients are being coded with sepsis and the ones in general that are being coded now are less sick. So all of that will combine to, to lower mortality. I think also, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the surviving sepsis campaign. I think it's had a very positive influence on sepsis care because of increased awareness and, and um, sort of codification of how we treat these patients. So there's been a lot of debate you know, in the earlier iterations about industry influence and stuff. I think they've addressed that in the 2012 uh, iteration of it. And so I think all of that combined has led to uh, better care and more patients being coded as severe sepsis. Sure, and even just increasing awareness and increasing coding may have the uh, the effect of at least recognizing patients earlier and, and treating them appropriately. Right, and I, exactly. And, you know, there's been, again, a lot of debate about early goal-directed therapy and central venous pressure and, you know, the different goals of goal-directed therapy. But uh, the thing that I think it has done is just it's just created this understanding that hours do matter and that resuscitation starting with volume resuscitation in the vast majority of sepsis patients is really the cornerstone of, of treatment and then early antibiotics is, is the second cornerstone and and so a lot of places that don't do true early goal-directed therapy have embraced some of the fundamental ideas of earlier volume resuscitation and I, I think it's rare now that patients who present with severe sepsis, signs of organ dysfunction or, or frank septic shock don't get aggressively resuscitated at the majority of emergency departments around the country. And I think just that single intervention, adequate access and, and aggressive uh, large volume resuscitation has, has helped a lot of patients. And then when you add early antibiotics, not 10 hours after the person presents, but within the first two hours or so, or three hours at the most, those things combined have a big mortality benefit. Sure. You know, I, I think that uh, certainly we'd like to all commend um, the uh, Surviving Sepsis Campaign and, and, and certainly like to think uh, that we are all doing a, a better job in treating these patients. I, I do wonder to, to to help confirm that, is there a way within the NIS database to uh, control for severity of illness over the over the years? So you can, in one sense, uh, that you can look at the percentage of patients with uh, different numbers of organ dysfunction. So one versus two versus three organ dysfunctions, and I believe that um, Lagu and Lindenauer did that in in their paper. Um, so, yeah, they, they looked at the decrease in the number of patients who only had one organ dysfunction and the increase in number of patients with three or four organ dysfunction. So the other thing you're seeing there is, you know, there's 
an increased understanding um, of what constitutes an organ dysfunction, so more people are getting coded for it. But one way you can sort of stratify these patients for severity of illness is obviously do they have septic shock, uh, do they have true hypotension, but then how many organ dysfunctions do they have? And in our work and in the work from Lago and Lindenauer and other people, you see that as you increase the number of organ dysfunctions or as you move from sepsis to severe sepsis to septic shock, the mortality increases. So it, it tells you or, or it, it um, resonates properly with your idea that you're moving up through severity of illness and that even though these are large databases with um, uh, administrative capture techniques that they still do correlate at least grossly to the severity of illness in the patients as a population. Right, so I might be interested in, in comparing, uh, I guess, patients with uh, similar organ failures or with, uh, or just all comers with, I guess, with septic shock and see if uh, yes, uh, mortality is, is true, truly improving. Uh, additional uh, investigations that can be done in yeah. this database and other databases looking at exactly these kinds of things. Hopefully some fellows are out there listening. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Cause we, we certainly can't do it all, and we aren't the only ones who are doing it. There's lots of, you know, really great researchers and uh, people working in this area. I, I think one thing that's interesting is... Um, and we talked about it a bit in our paper, is the, there's one paper that uh, is somewhat similar to ours by Willems and colleagues, I believe that's how you pronounce it, from, from Sweden. And one of the striking things there is the, you know, using a couple of the search techniques that we use, Derek Angus's and I believe they used uh, Greg Martin's, uh, they showed uh, incidents of severe sepsis in Sweden, that was uh, way, way, you know, uh, lower than what we showed. I believe 30-fold lower. So you have to wonder what's going on um, in the coding there and what's, uh, what is different. Is, is, is there a difference there between the severity of infection or is it all coding-related or is it a mixture? It's probably a mixture. And people have shown similar things geographically in the United States, too. There's been some talk about a, a sepsis belt through the southeast where there's uh, significantly increased uh, incidence of sepsis. Henry Wang published a paper on that. So there's a lot of work to be done to understand um, the complexity of this and understand how to deliver the best care as things vary from region to region and population to population. Great. Well, thank you very much for your contributions. I, I wonder, um, what do you think we, we should be doing moving forward, and how, how do we come together and uh, form a model of data abstraction such that we can truly compare um, hospitals to hospitals and, and, and internally to make sure that we're uh, all doing the best that we can? Uh, wow, that's, you know, that's a great question. Uh, certainly, I, I think that uh, a starting point would be if we could figure out how to use electronic medical records at individual institutions to automatically uh, generate uh, 
databases that that were accurate and incorporated a mixture of of uh, ICD-9 level information with true patient level information. Um, you know, there's more and more understanding that that you need to have the the patient level information. What's the hypotension? What's the respiratory rate? Um, and how even isolated values of those are not as as uh, helpful as how those change over time. And so uh, the complexity of capturing that into a national database is, is phenomenal. Um, and you think about the fact that, um, for example, most of my other research is in cardiac arrest. And, you know, in the United States, we really don't have any idea how many out-of-hospital cardiac arrests occur. We estimate them, whereas in a country like Japan, they have a national registry, and every EMS run goes into a national database. And, you know, Japan is significantly smaller geographically than the United States, about the size of California, but it has 50% of the population we do, and they're able to know probably within 100 arrests a year how many cardiac arrests occur there. And that's a really important thing for epidemiology and for um, pre-hospital care and for distribution of resources. And we need people who understand the, the national um, health care landscape significantly better than I do from an epidemiologic and um, resource distribution perspective to think about how can we capture the majority of these sepsis patients and then talk about how do we take care of these people the best. I'm, the other thing I think that will really improve care is, is further dissemination of some of the basic concepts of early resuscitation that we talked about. And, and those concepts have reached a lot of hospitals and a lot of clinicians, but um, still haven't reached all of them by any means. And so further dissemination of some of the basic ideas of early resuscitation that the surviving sepsis campaigns talked about. I think that's really the other foundation to it. But um, I think it will be, you know, years, decades before we actually have um, anything that approaches a national registry of severe sepsis. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, certainly well said. And certainly much work uh, to be done uh, and many, much room for investigation for many folks out there who are listening. Uh, I want to again thank you uh, for your, your work and your group's work and look for certainly more related studies in the future. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today and uh, it's um, an exciting area to work in and, and lots of great colleagues to work with and, and a real impact that uh, clinicians can make and researchers can make on the quality of care that patients are receiving for critical infection. Great. Thank you so much. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. You can now also find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Prepare for the Critical Care Boards by attending SCCM's Adult Multiprofessional Critical Care Board Review Course, MCCBRC, to be held at the JW Marriott Hotel.
from August 10 to 14, 2013 in Washington, D.C., USA. The adult MCC-BRC is designed for practitioners who are preparing for the critical care subspecialty exams, as well as those seeking review on critical care. For more information and to register, visit www.sccm.org slash board review. Michael S. Weinstein, M.D., F.A.C.S., F.C.C.P., serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.